You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the ABA Standing Committee on Law and National Security. Before we begin our discussion with Professor Angela Stent on Russia and Ukraine's historical tensions, we have a real treat. As you probably know, Law Day, celebrated each year on May 1, is a national day set aside to celebrate the rule of law. Law Day provides an opportunity to understand how law and the legal process protects our liberty, strives to achieve justice, and contributes to the freedoms that all Americans share. And there is not a better time to pause and reflect on these freedoms. We encourage you to visit the Law Day page found on the ABA website, www.lawday.org, to learn about all of the activities planned between now and May 1, as well as the resources available to you. Allow me, please, to introduce ABA President Reggie Turner, who joins us on our podcast today. It's my privilege to join the ABA Standing Committee on Law and National Security for this podcast as we mark Law Day and this year's theme of Toward a More Perfect Union, the Constitution in Times of Change. America's Constitution is a dynamic blueprint for government, respected throughout the world, that delegates power, articulates rights, and offers mechanisms for change. Over the last two centuries, legislation, court rulings, and amendments have built on our Constitution in order to form a more perfect union. Our Law Day theme reminds us that defining and refining the Constitution is one of our oldest national traditions. As members of the legal profession, each of us helps the United States become a more perfect union and to advance liberty and justice for all through the democratic rule of law. We remain steadfast on the critical need for an independent, fair, and impartial judiciary. We hold ourselves accountable to the highest standards of professional excellence and ethics. We advocate for legal aid and provide pro bono services to meet the extraordinary legal needs of our most vulnerable in our community. And every day, we demonstrate for our clients and the public how the rule of law works and why the rule of law is so precious and so critical to our rights and freedoms. At every opportunity, we must speak out for democracy and the freedoms we cherish. Lawyers and communities throughout America are marking law day in the coming days Our efforts are essential to developing and maintaining the legal profession's fundamental contributions to our democratic way of life. I'm grateful for your participation and proud to join you in community as we extol our constitutional values together. Now over to Elisa and Professor Angela Stent. One of the weak links that I have noticed in looking at your work is, I call it a weak link, but it's it's Germany, actually, because of the role that Germany has played in Europe's and our, frankly, relationship with Putin. I'd like to have you talk for a minute about the role that Germany has played in the West's relationship with Putin, because I have to say, you know, many of us didn't agree with very much that President Trump ever said we all did. He did say, you know, he was definitely very upset about the Nord Stream 2, which is one Nord Stream too late. 
But I also found fascinating the fact that Germany has cast itself in the role of dependent on Russia's oil and liquid natural gas, even decommissioning its nuclear power plants. How on earth did the sort of role of dependency come up and seem like a good idea? Well, you have to go back to 50 years to the chancellorship of Willy Brandt, the social democratic chancellor of Germany who decided to pursue a new Ostpolitik uh, towards Russia. And that, you know, Germany was divided and he believed that the way to try and overcome German Germany's division was to have a new policy toward the Soviet Union. And as part of that policy, he very much believed that economic engagement and economic interdependence could promote better political ties. And so in Germany, the phrase is Wandel durch Handel. It means change through trade. And so in 1972, Russia signed the first of its natural gas agreements with the Soviet Union and began to import Soviet natural gas. Really, until 2006, I would say, the Soviet Union and then Russia were always a very reliable supplier to West Germany and then Germany. In 2006, there was a dispute over price and they shut off the gas tank for a little bit. But so this was such a fundament of German Ostpolitik that you engage through trade and through energy interdependence, and that's going to promote better relations. So the Soviet Union falls, you have the new Russia, and again, Germany feels great gratitude, you know. So the German attitude towards Russia and the Soviet Union was also, first of all, guilt for what happened in World War II and for the 22 million Soviet lives that were lost in World War II. So guilt and then gratitude to Gorbachev for having allowed Germany to reunify peacefully. And so they redoubled their efforts in the 1990s to improve ties with Russia, to increase trade. And this, you know, continued when Putin came to power. And again, Putin for Germany is was special in the beginning. He was known as the German in the Kremlin because he speaks fluent German and because he'd lived in East Germany, but he knew German. And in 2001, just, I guess, after the 9-11 attacks, he was in Berlin and he made a speech in the old Reichstag, now the Bundestag, the parliament, where he talked about the eternal friendship between Germany and Russia. And it was a very forward-looking speech about how European Russia was. So in the beginning, uh, the Germans were very happy about this. And then, of course, when Chancellor Gerhard Schröder was defeated by Angela Merkel in 2005, he was then offered this position by Gazprom, the Russian natural gas company, to sit on their board and then to be on the board of the first Nord Stream 2 pipeline. I mean, people looked a little askance at that, the idea that the, almost the minute after you cease being chancellor, you start taking money from the Russians. And then he has this friendship with Putin. He's adopted some children from Russia. He spends a lot of time with Putin. He still won't criticize Putin. So that, that's Gerhard Schröder. But even when Merkel came in, and she being very different, more conservative, she grew up in East Germany. Her father was a pastor there. She speaks fluent Russian. She understood Putin and was wary of Putin. And she had this experience the first time, one of the first times that she met with him in Sochi. And he had read her file, being a good KGB agent, and understood that she's afraid of dogs 
dogs because she was apparently bitten by a dog when she was a child. And so he unleashed his big black Labrador, Connie, on her. And you can go and look at the video of her sitting very upright and keeping a straight face, but kind of looking warily at this dog. So, you know, the relationship began on a somewhat wary note, but still she also believed in continuing to increase Germany's energy trade with Russia, then the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline. And this, I think, intensified after Germany in what was probably a rash move, gave up all of its nuclear power after the Fukushima disaster, making itself more dependent on imports of Russian gas, you know, which are cheap. So that's really the energy relationship. But it went hand in hand with a political relationship where time and time again, whatever Russia did, the Germans said, we have to keep up the dialogue. We want to encourage modernization in Russia. And so, you know, that continued. And it took this invasion of Ukraine to get the new Social Democratic Chancellor, Olaf Scholz, to make a speech in the Bundestag on February the 27th, essentially jettisoning 50 years of Ostpolitik and saying, we're going to supply weapons to Ukraine, which Germany had refused to do before. We're going to not open the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. We're going to keep it closed because it hadn't opened yet. We're going to spend 2% of our GDP on defense. That all sounded wonderful, but less has happened than he promised. And just today, he had a 15-minute press conference where he essentially said, we can't wean ourselves off Russian gas. We need to keep importing Russian gas. And, well, we're actually not going to supply these very, you know, high-tech weapons to Ukraine. So I think there's been definitely some backsliding there. Germany is one of the few countries in Europe, Serbia is the other, where there have been this massive pro-Russian demonstrations, partly by the kind of Russian-German population, partly from the German left and the German right. So the public opinion in Germany is still quite divided about this. And the energy, even though I think they will try and wean themselves off Russian oil imports, they're moving much more slowly than I think people thought they would even a month ago. Yes. And I'm the obviously that's going to militate against effective sanctions, as I think at least some economists have pointed out that the billions of dollars pouring into Germany from these sales are 10 times, 100 times greater than the amount of money that Russia would lose under this sanctions regime that the United States has proposed. But I'd like to talk to you for a minute about one of the things that has stood out about Russia, and it's not the only country, of course, but BBC and US outlets have reported that Putin holds vast wealth, just huge sums of money outside of Russia. Now, he's been a career government employee and elected politician who arguably should not have amassed a fortune during his professional life. So how is this perceived in Russia? Is it received as corruption or is this something else or is it even understood by the Russian public? Well, first of all, corruption has been a feature of Russian political life forever. There was certainly plenty of corruption in the Soviet era among the leadership, the top people. I think the scale was smaller. I mean, the scale now is much larger, but still corruption is a fact of life. And most Russians understand, you know, you have to bribe a teacher if you want your child to get a good grade. You know, you have to bribe the serviceman to come and and take care of whatever needs you have. So bribery is is also part of the fabric of, of Russian life. I'm not sure that Russians understand exactly the scale of corruption that exists there, but they know that their leadership 
is corrupt. And you have, I mean, now the repression is so great that you can't have these demonstrations anymore. But over the years, you've certainly had demonstrations all over Russia when bridges fail, when there's a chemical explosion, again, exposing the corruption, you know, complaining about the corruption in the country. You know, Putin and his cronies have made their money largely out of rents from oil and gas, natural resources. This goes back, and I think you know, what his money goes back, as I said before, to the 1990s and to various deals that were going on when he was the deputy mayor of St. Petersburg. And they've continued then, particularly with with the rents from energy. And that corruption, I would say, is clearly has spread to the armed forces. It's always been there. One of the reasons why the army has performed much less well than people thought it would in Ukraine is because funds that were allocated allegedly uh, for training, for equipment, you know, to beef up and modernize the army went into individuals' pockets. Uh, and so what you see now is a result of that kind of corruption as well. All right. Well, let's let's return to this moment in Ukraine. We have spoken to the former twice CIA station chief who discusses something he calls the algorithm in Putin's mind. And so I would ask you, having studied him for so long, Why do you think he chose this precise moment, that is February, I believe, 24th, to move forward against Ukraine? What what was he looking at, do you think, that made this an opportune time? So he's been wanting to do this for some time, but he thought this was an opportune time. First of all, he looked at Ukraine. Uh, We forget that before the war, President Zelensky's popularity was low. He wasn't really delivering to the population. And the Russians were mad at him. When he first became president, he appeared to be more conciliatory. He said he wanted to make peace with Russia. And as time went on, his position hardened, and he had gone after Viktor Medvedchuk, who's now appeared on TV, I guess, yesterday, asking to be swapped for some British soldiers who were captured. Anyway, he went against Putin's main ally in Ukraine, Medvedchuk, who the, was the head of the main opposition party, and Putin is a godfather to his daughter. So he thought the, the Ukrainians were weak, and that he probably believed his own sort of propaganda historical myths that Ukrainians and Russians are one people. Secondly, he looked at the United States. He looked at the disastrous withdrawal from Afghanistan. He thought that the United States was weak. He looked at the Biden administration having difficulty getting its legislative agenda through Congress. He saw a polarized America, which of course the Russians have helped exacerbate through all of their influence operations, but he saw a polarized America, a weak America, and he thought that the US wouldn't react. And if you look at the way the Obama administration reacted to the annexation of Crimea, then you could say, well, maybe he had some justification or the Bush administration really to the Russia-Georgia war. He probably was justified in his own mind in thinking that there wouldn't be a major reaction. Then he looked at Europe. He saw a German government, a new German government, a coalition trying to form, distracted by its own domestic issues. France, distracted by the presidential election. Britain, distracted by Brexit. And so he he saw a kind of what he thought was a weak and distracted Europe. Uh, and that was another reason why he thought, you know, this was probably the time to intervene. And I think he also did not believe uh, that there would be these kind of tough sanctions. Yes, there were sanctions in 2014. And yes, they affected the Russian financial system. But he just didn't believe that. So I think he thought this was the time to, to act. He has been isolated for over two years with the COVID. He hasn't seen that many people. He was surrounded by 
a few advisors who told him apparently what he wanted to hear, that the Ukrainians would collapse within 72 hours and that there wouldn't be much of a Western reaction and that the Russian army would perform in a much more professional way than it did. He obviously believed this. And so this is why he chose that date. That particular date, because he had to wait till the end of the Beijing Olympics. He was in Beijing on February 4th. And we understand that he was again told that please wait until after February the 22nd. So on the topic of sanctions, we've spoken briefly about Putin's wealth, but you've also mentioned these oligarchs. These figures, I think, are not well understood in the United States. I'd like to ask you for a little bit to talk about who these people are, because it's been reported that when the Soviet Union fell, they somehow managed to have cash and were able to acquire what was 50% of the net or more of the infrastructure and natural resources of this country, which... I arguably belong to the Russian people, but are now enriching these oligarchs and who are apparently paying some sort of a tax to Putin in order to continue to function. Who are they? How did they get into control? And what effect, if any, would sanctions on individuals like these oligarchs have on Putin himself, in your opinion? So you have to understand the Russian system as, you know, all of these people own their assets at the pleasure of the czar. It was true in the czarist times. It was true to some extent in the Soviet times, and it's certainly true now. So what happened, first of all, when the Soviet Union collapsed, a lot of former KGB people particularly knew where the money was buried, if you like, and they helped themselves to that money. And then you've got the beginnings of the Yeltsin era oligarchs, people like Mikhail Khodorkovsky, who, of course, subsequently did 10 years in prison uh, because he fell afoul of Putin. And Mikhail Friedman, Peter Arvin, this is the Alpha Bank. A lot of these people, Oleg Deripaska, Aluminum, these people's names have been in the papers because they've now been sanctioned. But they made their money during the Yeltsin era. What happened in 1995 particularly was Yeltsin was facing re-election and his popularity numbers were in the single digits. And in January of 1996, these oligarchs that I've mentioned, plus a few others, got together in Davos on the margins of the World Economic Forum. And they said, we can't have Yeltsin lose because if he loses, the communists will come back to power. And we've been making quite a lot of money and we're going to start losing that money. And so they made a deal that they were all going to do everything they could to support Yeltsin's re-election. And they poured money into that campaign. And return for that, they were told that they could essentially privatize the huge state, still state-owned assets of oil and gas and, and nickel and precious metals and diamonds and you name it, all of the precious metals and, and hydrocarbons with which Russia was endowed. They bought them for a song and they made huge amounts of money on it. So Mikhail Khodorkovsky, whom I mentioned, he then got hold of these very lucrative oil, oil fields. He formed the company Yukos, which was at that point the most profitable oil company in Russia. And yes, from what we understand, these oligarchs who made all this money, they also, let's say, served Putin's interests too. And that's how the system evolved in the 1990s. Now, when Putin came to power as president, as I alluded to this before, he then told the Yeltsin era oligarchs, if you stay out of politics, you can keep what you have. And so some of them did. Uh, they stayed out of politics and they continued uh, to pursue their close ties with Putin because that was the condition by which they could keep their money and their assets was if they 
they continue these relationships with Putin. And then some of them, Khodorkovsky, I already mentioned, uh, criticized Putin, fell foul of him. Khodorkovsky's company was taken over by Igor Sechin, the head of Rosneft. And he, of course, is one of Putin's oligarchs. And then there were a couple of Yeltsin-era oligarchs, Boris Borisovsky and Vladimir Gusinsky, uh, who would own media empires and things like that. They, again, were seen to challenge Putin and they were thrown out of Russia. They lived in exile and Berezovsky uh, died by suicide in, in Great Britain a number of years ago. And all of their assets were taken over by the Russian state or by oligarchs that were close to Putin. So now you have the Putin-era oligarchs, many of them who grew up with him in St. Petersburg, who were part of this collective in, in the lake there. And they've also, of course, been sanctioned. And then you have, I think, people high up in the intelligence services in the military who've also made large amounts of money and who could be considered to be oligarchs, although not maybe on the scale of the other ones. Now, someone like Oleg Deripaska, who was successfully made the transition um, also to being an oligarch with close ties to Putin. How, how do the sanctions against these oligarchs affect Putin? I don't think Putin cares that people are losing their yachts or their homes, you know, in Sardinia or their homes in the south of France. So I think the fact that they are sanctioned and they can't travel to visit their properties and their bank accounts, I don't think that has any impact on Putin because these people are dependent on him for what they have. And if it's taken away by the West, you know, there's not very much Putin can do about it. Now, they've also sanctioned, you know, Putin's two adult daughters and some other Putin relatives. Whatever impact that has, it doesn't change his calculus in this war. He knew there were going to be sanctions. He didn't know they were going to be as extensive as they were. And sanctioning oligarchs, and I assume sanctioning even his family, is not going to change what he does. And he's still determined to subjugate Ukraine. Well, with respect to the sanctions on Putin's daughters, I guess I assumed it would be open season on uh, Hunter Biden, since he loves a tit for tat. But we're looking at this war, it seems to escalate by the day. But based on history, how do you think this ends? It's very hard to see how it ends. I mean, the war's been going on since 2014 in the Donbass. It could end with a successful Russian capture of all of the Donbass, of the city of Mariupol, and then I think the Russians would have their sights on Odessa. If they were able to take all of that, and I'm not saying they were, they might be willing at that point to say, you know, we have a rump Ukraine left, and that would be a Ukraine which is landlocked. It doesn't have access to the most important economic lifeline, which are the ports in the Black Sea. That's one way it could end uh, from the Russian point of view, and there could be a ceasefire. That would be, of course, be terrible for Ukraine because it would have lost so much of its territory. Another scenario is that the Russians don't succeed in taking all of these things, that we keep supplying Ukraine with weapons, and that the war then could continue for a very long time. I mean, we had General Milley say the other day this could go on for months or years. That's another scenario. I suppose a potential scenario would be for Ukraine to surrender. That doesn't look likely at the moment. The Ukrainians are still fighting back valiantly and much better than the Russians would have thought. But it's very hard for anyone to see an end game here as long as Putin is in power, because he does seem so determined that Ukraine should not exist as an independent state. But historically, I think there's an imagination on the part of many Americans that somehow 
Putin will suffer politically at home. This will cost him his role as the Russian leader. Historically, how has power transferred in Russia? Well, in a thousand years of Russian history, it's death, either by natural causes or unnatural causes. It's revolution or it's a power's coup. You know, death is always out there. (laughs) Putin's about to turn 70. There are rumors about his health, but nobody can substantiate any of those. Popular revolution is highly unlikely because the situation now in Russia is so repressive and people who've protested against the war have been jailed or many of them have gone into exile. And palace coup is always a possibility, but it's very hard to see how that happens right now with Putin just surrounded by a few people uh, who, as far as we can see, are loyal to him. So it's, yeah, in the Western imagination, they think that because the war isn't going well, that somehow this will lead to Putin leaving power. I think you have to be very cautious to make predictions like that, because there are real, no, really no concrete signs that that's going to happen anytime soon. But uh, those of us that study Russia know that we have been often surprised by what happens. So there could be a surprise in store. But unlikely, it would be sort of a swarming of the oligarchs to bring him to his senses, if you will. No, 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 that's that's not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Our guest tonight has been Professor Angela Stent, author of Putin's World and other books on Russia. We will hyperlink to those books in the notes to this cast, and we would encourage you to take a look at them. They provide an excellent and detailed history, and they read as highly prescient. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank you, too. And thank you for listening to NSLT. Share this episode with a friend and discuss it over coffee. Subscribe to NSLT and send us comments and feedback on Twitter at ABA NATSEC, or go ahead and send us an email at nationalsecurityatamericanbar.org. And the Standing Committee on Law and National Security will continue to keep you informed and give you context on these fast-moving international developments that will bring national security law into action. And don't forget, the lawyers hosting this podcast are here in their individual capacity and not on behalf of any agency or firm. Thanks for listening. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.